Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, I'm Jonathan Moles, and you're listening to a special edition of FT Startup Stories, based on a live event that we held at the Financial Times in London last month. Our panel... All entrepreneurs featured previously on the show shared their experiences with an invited audience, and we've selected some excerpts from the discussion for this show. In order of appearance, you'll hear Shaquille Khan, Diane Young, Rebecca and Tristram Mayhew, John Lynch and Lopo Champalamold. I began by asking them how long it took them to feel that their business was on a secure footing and how they handled those insecure first years. I think one of the most important things is to be an entrepreneur, you live in a world of optimism, right? where everyone else is telling you you can't do it. You have an inner belief, rightfully or wrongfully, that this is going to work and you've cracked the magic code which other people have. And that tends to be a lot of the drive to either get you to the place where you work out, hey, I did have something or everyone was right and I may have been wrong and I didn't achieve that. So I think optimism is a healthier way of thinking when you go through this. There's never any timeline because every business has um, different challenges. If you look at Spotify, it took many, many years. And I guess for me, um, I invested in Spotify and more importantly, Daniel Ek, the founder and CEO, when he was a 23-year-old young chap with a dream and a vision. And I remember him saying to me, one day, everything is going to be done on your mobile, right? There was no iPhone then. The furthest you kind of got on the smartphones in the Western world was a BlackBerry. And you couldn't visualize a BlackBerry doing all of those things. And he said, digital camera is going to go away. All these things are going to go away, and you're going to have that. And somewhere in a moment of craziness, I had belief, or he you know, made me uh, believe that he was onto something. And I'm like, OK, let's go do it. To be honest, had it not been Daniel and somebody else had told me, I may have thought, hey, this is crazy. Diane, you co-founded The Drum. What was it that convinced you to come on board with that? Well, I feel a slight fraud here because this is called Startup Stories and we've actually been going for more than 30 years. Uh, This is my 20th anniversary at The Drum, uh, just at the end of last month. So we're kind of a startup in that five years ago we started to actually understand how to run the business properly. And then we've had some really nice growth the way that people that actually started five years ago might have immediately done. But before that, we had about 25 years where we really were just kind of clinging on and trying all sorts of different strategies. And the thing, I suppose, that kept us going was two things. One, we couldn't really see a way out because our houses were on the line and we had debt. But I think the other thing that kept us going was just some kind of sort of grim determination, some sort of masochistic feeling that one day, in spite of everything, we would get it right and that we had something to offer. And that did eventually come to pass, thankfully. And in the last five years, we've been much more successful. And What was that moment that you knew it was going to change? Was there something you did? Uh, yeah, I think we just started to realise that in order to run a business, it wasn't enough just to be good at inventing products. 
to know your audience, to know your customers and to have a plan. What we actually lacked was any kind of proper business training. The two other people who run the business with me, one left school at 16 and went into the business, one left school at 17 and went into the business and I worked in the health service for five years with no business experience and then I went into the business. So among the three of us, we really had no experience of ever being in any business. Mm. So that was something we should have realised much earlier. It might be holding us back and done something about finding ways to improve our business skills. Yeah, but your case is typical. Most businesses are slow burn and some of them get to be really successful. It's that surviving. I think one of the things that's really quite difficult mentally, maybe emotionally, is that you do look around and I think there's a tendency for the stories that come to light in the media, the trade press and so on, is all the really fast growth, you know, mm. zero to billions in no time at all stories. And, and I think you're right for most business owners. It's not really like that. And you sort of sit doing your day-to-day, -day, kind of building it, building it, building it. And you look at those stories and think, I must be doing something totally wrong. But I think those stories are probably the exception. But that doesn't seem like it when you read the business press. Yeah. And is it also finding other entrepreneurs? You don't often meet people sort of socially who say, oh, yeah, I'm an entrepreneur as well. Did you, mm, you have network? To, yeah, you have to seek them out. I think that was a big part of what changed us, was actually learning to find people who would help us, who would talk to us, who would listen to us, just to understand what you're trying to do and how hard it is. But I've found people who have been willing to you know, talk to me for the price of a couple of beers for lunch and who have given me the most amazing advice and support that have really helped us to transform the business. They probably mm. don't even know who they are, actually, I must yeah. make sure. Some of them do. But some people, you know, if you hang around with the right people, then you get loads of tips and loads of encouragement, I suppose. We weren't getting that when we were struggling. Yeah. We were just trying to do it all on our own, and yeah. that's not a good idea. John, you were in another country doing this. So I came from a non-business family and went into a traditional post-MBA career in management consulting, etc. And then I got a phone call. How would you like to take one year off your career and moved to Eastern Europe right after the fall of communism and work as a volunteer for a year to help entrepreneurs in Poland, Czech, Hungary, and, and Slovakia, only to return home to the rat race in New York and go back into my corporate career. So that was the big plan. Tell the grandkids someday that I was there, did something historically important after the fall of communism. And when I was there, and there was no business education in Eastern Europe, they had central planning as their main topic in business school, we were finding these Central European, Polish, Czech entrepreneurs who were just starting businesses. There was so much demand for so many different products and services that anyone with a little bit of capital, a thousand dollars, a cousin in Chicago who would wire over three thousand dollars, or a car. A car was the most incredible asset in 1989 because you could drive to Germany, buy orange juice, drive back and sell it out of the boot of your car in the square. So we were working with these entrepreneurs. At first, Maybe even a little haughty, like, well, these poor Polish entrepreneurs, they don't know anything. But then we're watching them grow these businesses. And people who six, 12 months earlier literally were making $20 a month have this company that's now 20 people, 40 people, 100 people. And at the end of the year, when almost everyone else in the program went back to their Wall Street or consulting or corporate jobs, I just said, look at the opportunity. Do I want to be a consultant for entrepreneurs? Maybe I should give a shot at being an entrepreneur. I was still paying back the loans, so I, I didn't have the luxury of failing in my venture. I think that this optimism statement is true, runs through all entrepreneurs. The persistence 
as the key, in my view, the, the key word in long-term success. The press glorifies the Zuckerbergs and, and, the, and the billionaires who grow to, what do they call them, unicorns, who could do yeah. a billion dollars in five years or something. This is absurd, it happens. It's so statistically unlikely that just get it out of one's mind. It's gonna be a long haul. I'm running my business for 24 years. I'm working as hard today as I was 24 years ago, which means I'm clearly not as bright as Zuckerberg. Um, <laughs> but that long haul and not failing is the critical ingredient for entrepreneurial success. And you asked the question, when did you think you made it? When I was younger and more naive, I thought I had made it several times at the earlier stages. Raised first private equity. I remember the pride, the excitement, someone's putting millions of dollars into the business. We got to a million dollars of turnover in our third year, which is actually pretty, for most startups, is pretty exceptional. And then we kept growing, but we still weren't that big as a company. So I have had, who was it, the Intel, Andy Grove, who said only the paranoid survive? <laughs> I, I think that I'm 24 years later, still paranoid. The business is growing, it's stable, it's, it's a good company. But I still think that it can be dislodged at any moment, and that's what keeps me moving. So I don't think I've arrived yet. Rebecca, Tristan, have you arrived? You've got the T-shirts on. <laughs> I think I, I share that view that, you know, we're 14 years in, into the journey. We've got about 1,000 people, 35 million turnover. But have we arrived? No, because there's always the next plan. And, you know, that's what keeps you going. You're never standing still. You both gave up the corporate life in London. You moved out of town. My background was I was a soldier till I was about 30. And when I wanted to ask somebody to marry me, I didn't want to say, and follow me around the world and we'll always be moving, we'll always be poor, and our kids will have a very bad educational experience because you're always moving. And Bex was always on twice my salary anyway, so I didn't think that was going to result in the right answer. So I thought, right, I'm going to leave, and what do I do? And I didn't know anything about it because I'd only known the military and working with a few policemen. So I bought a book, Best 100 Companies to Work For, and two of the three top companies were Coca-Cola and GE. So I worked for Coca-Cola and then moved to GE a year later, but I fundamentally didn't feel I was doing something that was worthwhile. And Beck said, look, you're losing your mojo. You know, we need to do something for ourselves. And we had a sort of eureka moment whilst on holiday in France, and we were looking to do something in the outdoors based on the premise that you're more likely to be successful at stuff that you naturally like doing because it won't feel like work and you'll put the extra in. And also, seeing as though the stats say that eight out of ten cats fail, you might as well do badly doing something you enjoy because if you're going to be poor, you might as well be happy and poor. So uh, Go Ape sort of struck with my sort of military outdoorsy stuff. But your question, I think, originally was success. When did you feel you got success? Well, I feel like it was the Easter Saturday, five days after the 26th of March, which is when we opened in 2002, because that was the day where customers were literally stripping harnesses off previous customers so that they could put them on to go up into the trees. And at that point, I'd forgotten about VAT. We were 20% out already, you know, so numbers weren't our strongest. But I saw that we had customers who were really thanking us for the experience. They paid a lot of money to come and do. The people who were working with us on this adventure, mostly at that time, were sort of ne'er-do-well ex-military types like me, who were sort of bumping along the career bottom because they didn't get on with working for other people particularly either. And we were having a great time. And I felt, and I still feel, that I've never felt richer than that point because... I was doing something that I wanted to do 
that felt like it had a social impact, which is about creating adventures and encouraging people to live life adventurously. We had a whole bunch of values that are still uh, very much our DNA. And the monetary success is something which is important because a year later, when we expanded a bit too quickly, we nearly couldn't pay the wages. I realized that profit is not a, an ugly word. Greed is an ugly word, but profit isn't. It means we have to do good things and pay people's wages. But in terms of financial success, how long did it take? Well, we didn't pay ourselves for 20 months. We lived off the differential between the house that we had mortgaged and remortgaged and were renting out in London and a sort of farmhouse in the country. And then we took a sort of probably a 50% pay cut for several years after that before we caught up to what we were on before. But we never took any external investors because we just felt if we lost it all, we'd feel badly, we'd have to pay it back anyway. And we don't want anybody bossing us around. We'd rather reinvest, reinvest and keep control. And we still have never taken any external investors. And I think that's been a really good move. But are we successful? I suppose it probably took three years to move from an award-winning loss-making business to <laughs> an award-winning profit-making business. What about that paranoia that someone else is going to come along and do it as well and, and eat your lunch? Before we set up, we thought, who could come and hit us? And the sort of military thing was, who's the enemy? How do we take them out, sort of stuff. <laughs> um, and so we said, well, who can build these courses? Who's the best? And we went to see them. And we said, do you want a piece of the business? They said, no, 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 you know, we just, you pay us and we'll build. And I said, what would it take for you to only build for us? And they said, well, you order one course a year and you, we won't build for anybody else in Britain. And then we looked up on the internet and saw that the Forestry Commission had visitor centres and they had some food and catering and car parks, all that really expensive, boring stuff that you'd have to put in. But they also had customers. So we went to them and said, look, can we do a deal with you that we can build this course? And they went... Wow, we didn't know that happened, but that sounded great, but we'll give you a one-site, three-year deal. And I said, no, we can't chuck in our jobs if that's that. We need to get a national deal. So if the first one works, and you're happy it works, and we're happy it works, then we want at least five more that are guaranteed name sites. You want the next best five so that some other competitor can't come in. And they said, well, you have to go to the head office in England, uh, and they'll never agree to that. They're too bureaucratic, they're civil servants. We're not good at this stuff. And we went to them, and we wanted a 10-year lease, but we thought, if you ask for 10 years, they'll negotiate us down to five years. So we said, well, we want, if we ask for 20, we'll get 10, but that looks a bit obvious. So we asked for 21 years <laughs> and thought it was a bit opaque. And they said, well, look, we want somebody to come and do this. We want people to grow fast because we realise we're not good at running business. We also want people to encourage young people and teenagers to get into the forest and healthy outdoors, part of our government's policy about anti-obesity. So if you go fast enough, we'll give you an extra five years on top of your 21. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to do one plus four within five years. So we did one plus five within five years, and we had an exclusivity across the whole of the nation's forest, which had the best visitor centres. And then what was good enough, the Forest Commission was good enough for every borough. So competitors who saw what we did took competitors to our course and said, I can do that. They went, so you're part of Go Ape? And they well, not exactly... And so the councils then came to us and said, this is a great idea, but we want you to do it because you've got the track record. So before we started, we felt, how do we take out the competitors by securing the best sites and how do we stop them from getting in the game by taking out the best builder? Loper, let me bring you into the conversation. I'm happy they're not my competitor. <laughs> <laughs> we talked on the podcast about you buying 
other businesses and bringing in other founders, which is, in a way is sort of growing fast. Was there a point before that where you had to build up to that? Of course, yes. We started the business around my dining room table eight years ago. And so we set out to build this platform. And as we went through it, we found that we had to change our model a couple of times. And so I don't think we really found the model until almost our fourth year. And those first four years, three, four years, we, we were kind of, we were getting traction and we were building, but we were, we never quite felt settled. And then it was a combination of finding the right people and you could see how it worked. When you, you realize something just isn't working, how do you stop that and, and move and change direction? I think there's something in the instinct there and, and this willingness to embrace it and change it. And, and I think that is, I think, what Andy Grove meant when he said, you know, only the paranoid survive. It was, it's not a competitive threat necessarily. It's this desire to always think you could, you've got to do better, right? And you, could, you can improve it. And we had a moment in our history where we started off and my first page of my business plan, original business plan said open table for spas and salons. And then we were struggling to make it work for the first year and we kind of started on a, one journey. And then about 12 months into this, Groupon showed up selling daily deals. And I saw them in America and they were coming here and I looked at what they were selling and I was like, wow, 50% of what they're selling is hair and beauty. I'm the hair and beauty guy, I've got to like, I got to do this. And so we launched reluctantly a daily deal platform. And so our first thing we did was like just purely on instinct, we've got to do this. I made everyone stay over Christmas. We worked all through Christmas and New Year's and two weeks later we were the first to launch it and the business completely took off. And it overwhelmed my business, became 80% of our business. And two years later, I turned to my investors and I said, we've got a problem, which is this daily deal business is like, it's not a good business. I can't invest money in this responsibly. It's not the future of the business. We have to go invest back in what we originally said we were gonna do. And that was 80% of my business. Within six months, I turned off that business, right? I turned off 80% of my revenue. And I don't think we would be, I don't know if I'd be standing here today if I hadn't done daily deals. I know for sure I wouldn't be here today if I'd continued to do daily deals, <laughs> right? And so, but those are, so those are like, you just, but you have these big, big, you know, sometimes these big decisions you make and, and it's, it's instinct, right? I mean, I, I just like this, everything about it felt wrong. And you have to convince those people around you that you are right. You do have to convince. I mean, that's a job I think of an entrepreneur as a leader. I think your job is to lead. But I do also think you have to surround yourself with people who want to go on that journey. There's a period, especially in the beginning, where a business only exists because a group of people come into work every day and say, I want to make this exist. And if just one or two of those people that day walk in and say, actually, bad idea, I'm going home, it's over. It's that fragile. And that fragility doesn't last, it's not a couple days or weeks, it's actually, I think it's years <coughs> right, uh, of that. So first of all, you need a group of people who are willing to suspend disbelief. The second thing is you put somebody who you think can do the job, you believe in, who something sparks some interest and you think this person could do it and you put them in a seat and say, this is what I need you to do, figure it out. And some people in that environment thrive and some people don't. And what I describe it as is like the definition of a startup is that everything is to be done. Nothing has been done, right? And so your job is basically triage. Like what is it that you're going to do today and you're not going to do? today, right, in order to get this thing progressed. And there's a bunch of people out there, primarily suits, who in that situation, right, get flummoxed. They, they're like, how do I deal with this infinite list of things to do? 
And the thing is, not only do you have to do it, but you have to figure out what the list is, prioritize it, reprioritize it, and do that probably on a half hourly basis, right? <laughs> and figure this out. And a yes, I'm gonna come to your desk 20 minutes later and tell you, start again, we're doing something different. And be like, fantastic, let's go make it happen. Or to question it and push back, which is a totally legitimate thing as well. But not to push back because your resistance changed, but to push back because you have the intellectual honesty to question whether it's the right step. That is a golden employee. One of our earliest employees was the nephew of one of my best friend's mothers. And one day, this best friend's mother calls me up and says, you know, Lopo, do you remember so-and-so? I said, yes, that 16-year-old kid. He goes, yeah, well, he's grown up. He's just finished university in London. And I'd, I'd really like you to give him a job. She's a very determined woman. This woman, she says, I really think you must give him a job, right? And we're, at this point, by the way, we're seven people, eight people. We're a tiny group. And, uh, and I remember that. I'm like, I'll be polite. I'll have a coffee with this guy. So the guy comes in, has a coffee. And I said, so what are you doing? And he says, I'm working at Snappy Snaps, which I don't know if it still exists, right? The photography developed. I'm like, great. So you've graduated from SOAS, and you're working at Snappy Snaps. This does not seem like a promising start. And then he says something. I asked him a question, and it turns out that he's at the Snappy Snaps, which is right near the Brazilian embassy. And what he's been doing in his spare time, he manages it in some weird hours of the day, on his own back was he'd started AdWord campaigns on Google to go get people doing queries for Brazilian passports online. He'd figured out, I'm going to go do an ad campaign to drive business to my Snappy Snaps. With no coaching, no one at Snappy Snaps. And I, I heard this, and I'm like, you're hired. Right? <laughs> and then I said to him, I can't afford anything. He says, don't worry. I'll tell you what, I'm going to work six months for free. At the end of that, if I don't do a good job, if I've done a good job, you'll pay me the salary I want. And I had no idea how to afford him, right? But I thought, this guy's just amazing. And I hired him on the spot, and sure enough, he's still with us. And he's done really, really well, and he's one of the key parts of our team. But there was a magic there in that person. And you need dozens of those people. What are the challenges working with your own spouse, day in and day out? <laughs> What's the truth about being a husband and wife running a business? Rebecca. I think my take on being husband and wife running a business is that you have to be aligned in life. And if you're an entrepreneur, you work certainly in the early days, all day and most of the night and Saturday and Sunday. So I think to do it alone would be very hard. The truth is that, yeah, you have differences of opinions and you then have that opportunity to really thrash it out. And I think that has added a lot to the business over the years. Our family, you know, it is everything. In the early days, we used to hire a motorhome, go around every single one of our courses and talk to all of our people with our kids. So, you know, that was something that I think made the business really work. So, yeah, it has its moments. I think we've done very different jobs along the way, and I think that's been quite important as well. That has meant that we've added different things to the business. So... Yeah, you can add your bit. I, I think it's a bit like democracy. It's the least worst option. <laughs> you know, in terms of if one of us was doing it, it would be disastrous. And so there are times where you have to compartmentalise which bit of the relationship you're in because there are colleagues bit and frank and robust conversations. And then there are other bits where you have to be husband, wife and sort of romantic size and when you say you have to be you, you have to keep that is what i meant to say so i don't know i think it's it isn't for everyone but i definitely wouldn't change it diane may have some insights on this working with her husband 
Yeah, he's That's babysitting true. tonight, so... <laughs> <laughs> well, I can say that You're I like, because Gordon's not here, is yeah. uh, Well, we've worked together for 20 years now, and when we first met, I wasn't working in the business, and I could never understand what he did or why I was hanging about on a Friday night on my own while he worked till one in the morning with our other business partner to get the magazine away to the printer in time. Um, or why he was out at all these industry events and I was waiting at home or whatever. But once I came into the business, I could suddenly understand exactly what he did, why he did it. And um, I think it brought us closer in many ways. So many of you will go home to your partners and you'll talk about what happened in the office that day. And they'll be listening, but they won't really know the pe all the people, they won't really know the politics. Whereas we know exactly what the other person's talking about. I think it's really important you do different things in the business. Um, I think if we did very similar roles, we would clash. Mm. Um, and sometimes we do clash, but we get over it. And the other thing that I suppose we struggled with at first, but which we decided eventually just to get over, was trying not to talk shop outside of work. And then eventually we just said, look, this is what we love doing. It's okay to talk about it in the car on the way home or over the dinner table or the breakfast table. Sometimes we maybe go a bit over the top with that and their children are saying, will you shut up about the drum? <laughs> um, so uh, there we go. But I think the business actually gets a lot of extra value out of a couple. You know, all those extra hours that you spend thinking about strategy and talking about how to fix things that are maybe going wrong, is, you know, it's good value. We'll be back with more FT Startup stories in the new year. Until then, thanks for listening and goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.